Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. It is Tuesday, the afternoon of Game 6 of the NBA Finals, but we are here to talk about the NBA Draft, which is crazily just a week and a half away at this point. So it is Draft Deep Dives Day, and I'm here with my Draft Deep Dives co-host, hashtag basketball draft expert, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing today? Nick, we're so close. It's you, know, you can almost taste it. I think we got nine days left. Uh, NBA Finals, hopefully ending tonight. So much content to do. So many guys to talk about and write about. It's best time of the year. Love the draft. Can't believe it's already here. And since we are doing draft deep dives, let's wrap up the first round. We are going through players 27 through 30 of the top 75 available on hashtag basketball.com. Actually, as we will get into later, we're actually doing 27 through 31 today due to a last minute dropout, but we will get to that when we get there. Let's start instead with number 27 on that current top 75, again, available on hashtag basketball.com. Ayodesunmu out of Illinois. And we talked before about how I'm a little higher on Io than you are, but for someone who's evaluating him, whether you're higher on him or lower on him, he did have a quite excellent season for the Fighting Illini this year. They were the number one seed in the NCAA tournament. They didn't quite make it to the Final Four, as one might expect, of a one seed, but Io certainly had a great season, 20 points a game. His shot looked a lot better and a lot more consistent this year than it has in his previous seasons. And defensively, he's got size and a decent toolkit to excel on the defensive end of the floor at the NBA. He's a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none, which makes it kind of hard to evaluate where he stands in comparison to the rest of this draft class. But again, I think he's certainly worthy of top 20 consideration, might end up falling out of the first round. And if he does, I would certainly be one of the people pushing for him to go early in the second round. But what are your thoughts on Ayodesumu? He, he For most of the year, he was kind of a French first rounder for me, and I've even cooled on him some since then. I, I get the selling points with him. I get why people are excited about him, given the intangibles, which apparently, he by all accounts, he's this incredible leader and incredible work rate and work ethic. And he, he was really important for Illinois. The size is intriguing and encouraging. He's a really good defender excellent in the in the open court on both ends really good pick and roll creator i'm just not sure if his game's actually going to be able to translate to the nba because i struggle to buy into the shooting improvements uh free throw percentage went up slightly three-point percentage went up by about 10 percent, which is awesome but volume dropped way off and he was in the 12th percentile on runners. I don't think he has very good touch. Um, I struggle to really buy into that. He is this legitimate mid 30% outside shooter. And on top of that, he's not a very good space creator for himself. So in the NBA, does he actually play that point guard role that he was able to play at 
at Illinois, where he was this excellent game manager, essentially. Um, I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but that's kind of what he was. And he took a backseat offensively when Curbelo and Adam Miller came in for a lot of those games and he led on the fringes. So I, I expect him to be in the NBA for probably quite a bit as a rotation guard. I'm just not sure what type of impact he'll actually be able to make. So for me, the reason that I buy into IO more than you do I definitely think that he's going to be a rotation player for a long time at the NBA level. And especially when you're talking about, you know, the latter end of the first round, that's a reasonable swing to take on someone. If you think their floor is high enough that they're at least going to be an NBA player. I think the difference there though, and you brought up something key with mentioning his runner numbers is what does he do if he doesn't have the ball in his hands? And I think I buy in a little bit more to the on-ball stuff, just mainly because this year, really the thing that was most impressive to me is he managed to have a pretty sizable uptick in his assist numbers without really having a sizable jump in his turnover rate. And that, I think, is really key for me. You know, his decision-making has been better. You know, you mentioned the leadership aspect of things and certainly it seemed like he excelled in that regard even if he might not have the shake or really the scoring touch to be sort of a primary scoring option in the NBA I think that he's shown enough this past year that I am confident in him as a bench guard I think really the question is how much more than that can he do and he's shown flashes I think at times of being a little bit more than a backup guard type but really for me it's just he has enough of a varied skill set that you know even if he's closer to a 35 percent three-point shooter than a 39 percent three-point shooter like he was this past season I believe enough in his ball movement and his ability to at least be something without the ball in his hands that I think he has a decently high floor as for the ceiling, I mean, maybe he could put it all together, but as you mentioned, those runner numbers are concerning in that if he doesn't get all the way to the rim or have an open look from long range, he's not really doing much in that sort of middle area of the floor. So I, I, I want to push back a little bit on the kind of creation ability because I, I agree out of the pick and roll, he was one of the best in the country, uh, 187 of his pick and roll passes ended up in a shot and he ranked in the 90th percentile in points created when passing out of the pick and roll, which is absolutely extraordinary. However, out of isolation, only seven of his passes ended up in shots and very few of them went in. So when you have that little creation on your own in the open floor, I, I struggle to really envision how great of a creator he is because I, I think he is really dependent on having that monster of a, that mountain of a man in Kofi Coburn screening for him to create that space because I, I don't think he's that elite of a ball handler or elite of a passer where he's going to pass guys open or create significant advantages for the offense but if all you're asking him to do if you have this awesome screen setter and you just want him to come in and run 
a screw a pick and roll or two at the end of a quarter or something, then I, I agree. Then I think he can be a really solid playmaker. Um, the off ball stuff, I just, I really, the biggest thing is that I really struggle to see how he fits in because I don't think, or because I don't buy the shooting improvements and I don't think he's, he puts enough pressure on the defense with his ball handling and scoring to be a purely on ball creator. And I don't think that he's a good enough shooter where he can play that off ball role. He is bigger and his defensive acumen, I think would be really useful next to more of an offensive offensively focused point guard. I just struggle to really buy into his shooting improvements being that legitimate where he isn't a liability liability as that off ball two guard. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. I mean, I guess I certainly buy into the shot more than you do or the shot improvement really more than you do to the point where I think he could at least be close to average, which and you brought up the size. I think that's really the key here for me as well is because he has that size. It's a lot easier to see a lot of different roles working for him. You know, he can be sort of a point guard defensively off ball offensively type of player depending on the lineup and situation or you know maybe even he's the third guard in a three guard lineup you know that could work for him he's big enough where I could conceive that kind of fit working for him and I also do really buy into the defense with him and given how much I buy into his defense for me it's really just does he have enough on the offensive end and even though there are some questions, I think he could be at least close enough to average as a spot-up type that he can make it work for him given the defensive acumen. That's fair. I, um, I, it's hard to push back on that. I mean, we do, we just, I think the shooting is is the big turning point between us, and I mean, fit matters for every prospect regardless of skill. But I think fit is going to be really important for him because I, I think he does need to play alongside a more scoring score oriented guard because I just don't think he's going to be able to pressure the defense with his playmaking or his scoring from either shooting or attacking the rim to enough of a level where he can legitimately be that primary initiator. So it's tough it, defensively. I think that he could probably play along pretty much anyone because he he is a really smart tenacious athletic big defender in the backcourt so if he's being brought in to purely be a defensive minded guard and then whatever he gives you on offense is gravy then he he could be really valuable I just struggle to see taking him ahead of some of these other guys who I'm way more confident in making a consistent positive contribution or taking a big home run swing on in like the early second round or late first round. So before we move on to the next prospect, just sort of quick guess at ceiling and floor and how we view him as a prospect overall. I think that the ceiling for him is kind of like, and they're pretty different as players, but I see kind of a Marcus Smart esque role for him at his absolute ceiling where he's kind of the fifth guy on offense gap filler type makes the right passes when he needs to can shoot decently well but not great and then just 
fills whatever gaps you need covered on the defensive end. The floor for him, I think, is pretty high. I would be surprised if he doesn't get a second contract in the NBA, just purely based on defensive acumen and being at least close to, even at his floor, I think he'll be like a below average-ish shooter that's good enough on defense and at moving the ball to be like the ninth man in a rotation. I, I agree on the floor. I, I would be pretty surprised if he's not making a second contract, you know, not, not big money, but I would expect him to at least get a second contract and stick in the back end of a rotation or back end of a bench somewhere. Um, I, I get a lot of Michael Carter Williams vibes from him. I, I know that seems like absolute slander based on the slow start to MCW's career, but he has turned into a positive defensive contrib- contributor to a rotation. So Io's probably a little bit, or will probably be a little bit better of a shooter than MCW, but that kind of defense first off the bench in a rotation uh, type role is kind of where I, I see him peeking out at. All right, let's move on to the next prospect on the list. Jeremiah Robinson Earl out of Villanova and he is one of the best decision makers in this class. It always feels like he's in the right place, doing the right thing on both ends of the floor. And specifically on the defensive end, he's 6'9", not the quickest guy in the world, but he's got good enough feet. He can stay in front of most guards, but really he's got the versatility at 6'9", to capably cover pretty much any forward and maybe even some centers in stretches. The concerns for him really are just athleticism related and scoring related. He's not exactly going to be pouring in buckets at the next level, but you know, he's someone who I'm very confident in their ability to at least be a rotation player in the NBA and Most of that is just predicated on his great decision-making and his defensive versatility. He's such a smart player, and I I know that sounds cliche and not thought out because he's a Villanova guy, but their their point guards always really control the flow at Villanova, but Jeremiah Robinson Earl really kind of controlled everything on both ends of the floor. He was that floor manager on offense he was a defensive cornerstone on defense he's not the most athletic guy but he has incredible footwork which allows him to switch a lot on the perimeter he will get beat but he's never he never feels like he's getting completely torched or really blown past or is ever out of position he makes the right rotations it's never anything super flashy my biggest concern with him is how much his scoring impact fluctuated throughout the season. And there were stretches of of the season where he completely disappeared when his team really needed him to produce just any scoring. And he didn't. And it wasn't that he was just missing. It was that he wasn't even looking for the hoop, which concerns me a little bit. If if he can just be a consistent mid-30% shooter, um, his offensive impact will skyrocket, but he not, he rarely shot off the dribble. He 
was pretty disappointing shooting off the catch overall, but his IQ, his passing, his defensive versatility, and the slight upside in his offense, he's another guy where I really struggle to see him not being an impact maker in a rotation. And he just, he just screams like seventh man in a rotation to me. This is one of the most cliche statements that any draft speculator could possibly make, but it's really going to turn on the shot for him. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the oldest cliche yeah. in the book, but you yeah. know, he shot 33% from deep as a freshman and then 28% this past season and even then he took, you know, a little under 3 three-point attempts per game for his college career and didn't hit that many of them and even if he can get to like 35 percent from three or more likely 40 percent ish as a corner three-point shooter a la pj tucker that's really going to be enough for him it's just if he can't do that it's going to be a whole heck of a lot easier to slide him further down in that theoretical rotation than being the seventh man but if he can hit that, even that corner three-point shot at at least some degree of consistency, you know, given the rest of his skill set, he might even have starter upside if he can be even marginally consistent from somewhere on the floor. And I think that corner three-point shot is the easiest one to project, but, you know, maybe he gets to 30-ish percent at above the break threes, and then his team can have the ball in his hands more. You know, he can create in handoffs and high pick and rolls, that sort of thing. But he needs to get there with that shot because he's not scoring enough around the rim. I don't think for that to really be his primary offensive Avenue, he's got to have something that he can go to on that end of the floor. And if he's not hitting shots from long range, it's hard for me to sort of project what that might be. So I definitely think that he gets minutes regardless, just because of how smart he is, how always in position he is. And he just doesn't make mistakes or at least damning mistakes that really put his team behind the eight ball and he works really hard and even if that shot doesn't come along i i agree that he's gonna fall well short of his ceiling if it never does but i think there's a lot of small ball five potential for him there um he is only six nine but He's he just uh, he's really fluid and a really good mover despite not being this explosive athlete, and he's an elite offensive rebounder. He's in the 90th percentile in offensive rebound putbacks, uh, 77th percentile in post ups, and in the 88th percentile scoring around the basket. So even if that outside shot isn't completely falling, I do think there is some potential as that small ball five where he can come in and play defensively. They can play this super switchable lineup and have him constantly running around everywhere on offense, setting screens, rebounding, tipping out, you know, tipping back in offensive rebounds, even knocking down mid-range shots. And he was in the 90th percentile in the mid-range, which is encouraging for his shooting projection. I think a lot of it is confidence that he he clearly lacked this year but if that outside shot does come along it's really going to help him play in a bunch of different lineups 
but even if it doesn't, I think it limits him more to that small ball five. And I, I just struggle to see him not contributing to a rotation, at least on some level. Yeah, that small ball five role makes a lot of sense for him because he just fills so many gaps and mm-hmm. he's big enough that he could conceivably cover most centers. I mean, he'll certainly need a couple years in a weight room before he can guard the Nikola Jokic's and Joel Embiid's of the world. But, you know, to have him in for, say, 15 minutes a game as a small ball five, I mean, you know, if we're talking about the NBA Finals, it would be huge for the Phoenix Suns right now to be able to put him out as their small ball five instead of, say, having to run Frank Kaminsky out there. You know, if he can contribute in that kind of a role, which I think we both agree he very much could, the shot does matter a little bit less, and then it becomes more of a question about, okay, what's his ceiling going to look like if that shot can come along? Because even if the shot doesn't come along, he's still got that floor of an option as a sort of defense-first, small-ball-five type of player because he's got enough, you know, within 15 feet and in, he's got enough game 15 feet and in from the basket on both ends of the floor that he will contribute in some capacity as a small-ball-five even if he can't do much more than that by spacing the floor. Yeah, and and he, he even showed some ball handling and playmaking ability, not to an extent where you want him initiating the offense or anything, but where he can be, you know, running these dribble handoffs and keeping it and attacking the rim when the defense aggressively goes after the wing or passing out of the short roll and stuff like that. So it's a lot of stuff on the fringes. It's not going to be flashy. It's not going to be sexy. It won't fill up a box score, but it's going to be constant intelligent play and doing the dirty work and whatever other cliches you want to throw in there that lead to winning basketball. And I mean, we're talking about Robinson Earl right now as number 28 on the top 75. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the kind of range where, you know, look, if you're picking in that range, either you've traded for the pick, which, okay, you could be anybody if you traded for the pick, but for the most part, you're going to be a contender if you're, picking 28th overall and at that kind of spot you don't need the home run swing as much as you need guys who can reliably contribute to rotations as quickly as possible and you know it's hard to project any rookie to be above average or even at average defensively but with Robinson Earl certainly within two to three years of him being in the NBA I would be surprised if he's not a positive contributor on the defensive end of the floor by year three and you know maybe he doesn't have that superstar upside but he has shown flashes of being able to do something with the ball in his hands and if he's a role player type you know him just being able to be useful when the ball swings to him and a menace on the defensive end of the floor that's going to really help whatever team gets him especially if it's a team that's you know close to contender status and you you mentioned how how much you'd help phoenix right now just looking at the back end of the first round and he'd make a ton of sense in brooklyn playing that blake griffin role um i kind of imagine that blake griffin will end up getting paid a little more money than Brooklyn's willing or able to to pay him. So if they can slide in Robinson Earl right away into that role, I don't think they see a whole lot of drop off. So it's it's that style of player where 
he can knock down the open trailer three. He can take defenders off the bounce. He can switch on the perimeter. He can rebound. He can take charges. It's all of that little stuff that, that goes a long way. So it, it will be fascinating. If that shot comes along, it will be really fascinating to see how how much he grows and how important he is to a rotation because if if that shot really does come along i i think this late first round grade on him could look way too low in a couple years that's i think a good way to transition into talking about best guess at ceiling and floor and how we view him as a prospect overall if the shot comes along i think he could definitely be a fourth starter on a championship caliber team a defense first stretch four type of player who spent some time at the five and knocks down shots for teams and keeps the offense humming whenever the ball comes his way I think that's a pretty reasonable honestly ceiling for Robinson Earl as for the floor again I doubt sort of similarly to Io that he doesn't get a second contract in the NBA and I would be surprised if he isn't at his absolute worst, like the eighth or ninth man for a team for nearly a decade. I mean, he's just got enough, you know, both on the defensive end and in terms of his intelligence really on both ends of the floor, but his ability to be a cog in an offensive system and be a contributor defensively, I struggle to see him falling out of the league anytime early on in his career. Players of his two-way versatility and just general IQ and work rate, they rarely completely fall out. So I, I agree. I think he's in that similar boat as Io, where I'd be stunned if he doesn't end up getting a second contract or contributing at some level, at the very least, at the back end of a rotation. And then as that versatile four or even small ball five on a contender, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in that role on a consistent contender. So I, I, I know there are a lot of people out there who do have a much higher ceiling on him than that, but as like that top level role player on a contender, I think is kind of his best case outcome. All right, let's move on to the next prospect on the list. Daron Sharp out of the university of North Carolina And, you know, early on in this process, we talked about how you had Evan Mobley and Kai Jones in the top 10, and then one other center was getting first round consideration, and that was Dayron Sharp. And I have him towards the back of the first round as well, and the reasons for that are mostly just his energy and his rebounding. You know, we've talked a lot about how it's difficult to wrap up draft capital in big men when you can get an athletic seven footer on the free agent market pretty easily. But with Sharp, the reason that I would consider taking him in the first round, even despite those concerns about drafting big men overall, is in addition to that energy and athleticism and rebounding prowess, just ridiculous offensive rebounding rates from Dayron Sharp. He also showed real passing touch and that I think is the key for me as to why I would have him in the first round is that he's not just going to be an energy guy gathering up boards for your team but 
once he gets those offensive rebounds, it's not like he can't do anything with the ball in his hands. You know, he's not just grabbing the ball and then immediately putting it back up and hoping it goes in or tapping it to himself four or five times a la Andre Drummond or Nets Brooke Lopez, although Lopez has always had more to his game than just rebounding. But the thing with Sharp is that his passing vision and passing touch is good enough that I think there's something to build on there beyond just the energy and the rebounding. I I don't think it's absurd to say that he has the highest motor in this class when it's exhausting watching him play because he's just constantly just pedaled to the metal the entire time. And that, that gets him in trouble in some spots, but overall that's how a lot of guys get minutes who aren't the most skilled or best shooters. It's, who's out there working, who's rebounding, who's screening. And like you said, the the passing is the real upside with him where he can really pass out of the short roll, pass out of the post, make those skip passes to the opposite corner when the defense collapses on him or collapses on a cutter. So his, his vision is really unique for his position and his passing touch is really encouraging I think even with all that, though, he's still just so limited because he's not, unlike Robinson Earl, he can't switch on the perimeter. He'll get torched. His He's too high in a stance. His footwork isn't good enough. He's not that fluid. And he's, he's a complete non-shooter. Um, I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen some empty gym videos of him just knocking down like 10 threes or something in a row and everyone freaking out about it. But maybe the fact that we haven't is even more concerning give it for his uh, shooting projection. But if, if he's not laying it in or tapping it in off of an offensive rebound or dunking it, his scoring impact is virtually non-existent. Maybe they're saving the empty gym shooting videos for a couple days from now, you know, wait until all <laughs> the green room invites are out and be like, Hey, wait, I didn't get a green room invite. All right. Here's me knocking down a hundred three pointers and just ignore the smash cuts between every single one of those shots. You know, there's definitely no reason to believe that there's three misses cut in between <laughs> every single make that we've got on that tape. Yeah. He, he's a really quick uh, changer too. That's what the, the shirts are different colors, but he, I, to, to sharps credit it, he did shut down workouts really quickly. And really early on. So there are some theories out there that he has received a first round promise, which for him, I, I'm not sure I would, I would take him in the first round at this point, but still in the thirties. And if he do, did receive that first round promise, that's going to be huge for him because it guarantees him a contract and someone has a vision for how, how they'll use him. I mean, I don't think that he's the kind of player that they would take here, but you mentioned Brooklyn for Jeremiah Robinson Earl, and I can see the Nets just sort of saying, okay, we gave up Jared Allen, and DeAndre Jordan is finally to the point where we're willing to not start him, even though he's best friends with our big three. Maybe we just get a guy in who's going to be nothing but energy and rebounding, and when he does pull the ball down, he's going to be passing to some of the best shooters in the history of the NBA, so his lack of an offensive game, they can work around that, certainly. I don't know. It's 
it's an interesting thought, I guess, but I'm trying to think of who else towards the back end of the first round it might make sense to have made a promise to Sharp. Then I don't know. I the the Clippers kind of make sense to a certain extent, but I, I just don't I don't think he raises their ceiling enough. God, I hope it's not Utah after the Azubuke debacle from last year. Phoenix makes a little bit of sense, but I think there are way more important routes for them to go. Philly doesn't make sense. Denver doesn't make sense. I, the, I, I don't hate the Brooklyn fit, just given his energy. It's just, hey, go out here, set screens, get every rebound you possibly can, rack up your six fouls in 15 minutes and call call it a night. So I, I don't hate that for them. Um, but I, I just struggle envisioning a player of his of his mold and archetype really contributing at a in big time minutes to an NBA rotation where 10 to 15 minutes a night where he's out there for rebounding kick it to guy in the corner and just kind of muck it up and do the dirty work on defense that's you know i i struggle to see him doing more than more than that since he can't really put it on the put put it on the floor he can't attack off the dribble he can't shoot and but god does he play hard well that i think is you know really where we have the dilemma here is those kinds of players are pretty easy to find at the nba level so at what point mm-hmm. is it worth it to use a draft pick on taking one of those kinds of players and you know, again, for me, it's just that I have a lot of belief in him as a passer and him being able to make something happen, you know, not make something happen as in take guys off the dribble or anything like that, but, you know, to make the right reads with the ball in his hands to the point where, you know, sometimes those kind of energy big men types can be black holes on the rare occasions when the ball does touch their hands. And with Sharp, at least, I'm confident that he's going to make the right pass more often than, say, a Nerland's Noel. Yeah, that that's totally fair. And it, it is really important because you don't want to bring these guys in off the bench and then they just become ball stoppers and black holes in the post because it completely kills your offensive flow. And then as the season progresses, progresses, we see so much less of them. So that, that, that is really important. And I, you know, you kind of just looking at him and his passing ability, pie in the sky view is, you know, absolute hundredth percentile outcome for him. It's like, can he be that bam out bio offensive type role where, you know, he's not really shooting at all, you know, occasionally stretching it to 15 feet, but he's this really dynamic passer um, he has a bit more ball handling than he showed. He can really attack the boards and create havoc in that sense. So it wouldn't shock me if there is an NBA team that watched him this year at UNC and convinced themselves that, hey, let's let let's get this guy, bring him in and use him in that same kind of fashion. So that's a good way to transition into talking about best guess at ceiling floor and sort of how we view him as a prospect overall. And you mentioned Bam Adebayo as sort of the absolute 100th percentile upside for him. For me, when I'm thinking about ceiling for him, I think really I'm seeing like an 85th, 90th percentile version of Sharp where he's sort of like 
Warriors JaVale McGee, where he starts but is sort of a nominal starter. Mostly he's just playing 15 minutes a game and putting every ounce of energy he can out on the floor during those seven to eight minute stints per half. The flip side, you know, the floor is unlike with Robinson Earl and Io, I could see a world where Sharp doesn't make it to his second NBA contract, but I think that's a pretty low percentile outcome just because I think the energy, the rebounding, the passing will be enough for him to at least be an end-of-the-rotation bench guy for a while, but I think the floor for him is not being 7th or 8th man in a rotation, whereas I think that's pretty definitively the floor for Io and Jeremiah Robinson Earl. Yeah, I definitely think that he has a much lower floor. And the 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 BAM 100th percentile comp, that's purely offensively because I don't think he, he doesn't have that defensive versatility that BAM has, where BAM's one of the best defenders in the league. I would be really, really surprised if uh, Sharp ever reaches anywhere near that level. You know, I, I get a, a lot of Trish, Tristan Thompson vibes from Sharp where – he's not the biggest guy on the floor, but he's one of the strongest and has one of the highest motors. And he's going to be constantly fighting for every rebound. And all he's really asked to do offensively is pass out of the short roll, slide in from the dunker spot and set screens. And Tristan Thompson made a ton of money doing that. So if sharp can find a similar role, so fit's going to be super dependent or super important for him. If he can do that, then I think kind of like a, that that Thompson role is really best case scenario. All right. And we have now reached the number 30 prospect on the top 75 that Tyler has up on hashtag basketball.com. And actually, the player that we are going to discuss now was the 31st player on that top 75 because... Roko Prakachin, who was at 29 on that top 75, recently withdrew from the draft, which means, of course, that in absolutely fitting fashion, as we come to a close of the first season of draft deep dives, we, of course, have to end our prospect deep dives by discussing the one, the only future David Robinson and Tim Duncan comp, Alperin Shengun. How dare you. God. That line worked at the mock draft, and I just I had to pull it out again because I knew that you would appreciate it so much. You're making me sick. It's just (laughs) I don't I don't get it with this guy. I I mean I've seen some people have him as high as four. I think Hollinger has him at four and said that he could be even higher. I I don't get it. Um I'm probably wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. I hope he proves me wrong. But I think he's going to be such a disaster on defense that he's going to be near unplayable. Um, I, I I will grant that he has one of the most impressive post games out of any prospect in recent years. His interior footwork in the post is incredible. Uh, really good touch around the rim. Really impressive passer. I even think that he eventually becomes a decent shooter. Um, however, at six nine he's not moving any of these guys out of the way. Uh, He is completely lost in space defensively. He is a decent shot blocker, but again, at six, nine, I don't think he's going to be as effective and he's not this 
elite athlete where he's really going to be skying for blocks. And I just, I do not understand the infatuation with him because every year, all the arguments are always with big men. Oh, he's a bad defender. He'll be unplayable every postseason. It's, Oh, there's the bad, bad defensive center. Let's target him, play him off the floor. And now his awesome offensive impact is null and void. And people who are saying that he's the next Jokic are out of their minds. Jokic is a massive human being and has one of the most impressive basketball IQs and passing vision and creativity and accuracy in the entire league, regardless of position. So I just don't see how a post-reliant offensive center who is a mess on defense is worthy of a top 10 pick. Don't hold back though. Tell us how you actually feel. <laughs> we, we, we don't have enough time. So as you might've gathered, I am much higher on Shangun than Tyler is. I do not have him at number four overall. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but I would feel very comfortable taking Shangun in the late lottery. And it's something that we discussed on the draft philosophy podcast as well. I just think that when you are able to dominate a league to the way that Shangun dominated the Turkish league this season as an 18 year old, that bodes really well for your future professional basketball career. And Granted, there are reasons to be more concerned with Shangun's translation to the NBA than there were for the last 18-year-old who was the MVP of a non-NBA international league in one Mr. Luka Doncic. But with Shangun, I think that the shooting will come along a little bit earlier in his career than maybe you do. I think that he could be somewhere in the low 30s as a three-point shooter as early as maybe even year two in the NBA. There's a lot of reason to believe in his touch inside the arc as well as outside the arc. Obviously, he ridiculously made 68% of his two-pointers during the Turkish Super League season, and his offensive rebounding numbers were absolutely absurd. He's got that really developed post-game He also showed massive strides even over the course of the Turkish season as a passer, which I think bodes really well for his NBA future. And yes, the defense is going to be a problem. He, I don't think, is ever going to be even average defensively. Really, the question is, can he get to the point where he's not so much of a liability that it negates the positive offensive impact that he's going to have. And with him, I think he's got the intelligence and feel for the game to figure out where he needs to be on the defensive end eventually. I mean, he struggled playing professional defense as an 18-year-old. You know, I don't think that's as much of a knock as, say, struggling defensively at Division One college level. And as long as he can be an okay three-point shooter, I think the rest of his game fits in really neatly as someone who can be a solid contributor for a team. And when we talked about ceiling for Shangun earlier, I said that I thought DeMontis Sabonis might be a reasonable upside comp for him. 
And Sabonis isn't exactly a world beater on the defensive end of the floor, but he makes up for it with incredible post scoring, incredible rebounding, and excellent passing. And no, I don't think that Shangun is Nikola Jokic level, but I think I could see a world pretty easily where he reaches DeMontis Sabonis level. And that kind of player is definitely worthy of a lottery pick. And Sabonis was the number 11 pick, I believe, in his draft class. And I think that would be a pretty reasonable range for Shangun as well. Sorry, I th- I think that's also discrediting how, I mean, how much bigger Sabonis is than Sangoon. I mean, everywhere, the majority of places I've seen, there are some places that have him listed at 6'11", but the majority I've seen are 6'9", 240. And, you know, yes, he's only 18. Maybe he grows another couple inches. Maybe he, you know, he probably puts on some weight. I mean, Sabonis is 6'11". And I just, I don't see how Sengun reaches all-star or fringe all-star impact. I, I wouldn't call Sabonis a good defender, but I think he's much better than Sengun. Um, he's also backed by a pretty good rim protector in Miles Turner. And if you're having to play Sengun alongside another center, uh, to make up for his rim protection, I think you're doing your rotation and starting lineup a real disservice and really limiting how much you can build. And the pace we've seen the Pacers be this fringe playoff team, and and I guess they were around the four or five seed for a couple of years too, but no one's ever really taken them seriously in the playoffs, and they've never really been that threatening. So I I, I agree that I think Sengun could be this really dynamic offensive big man. And you're probably right that he shoots sooner rather than later. It wouldn't surprise me. I've, I've conceded that I, I do think Sengun ends up being a decent shooter. I just hit what he does defensively is so bad where I just don't see how he's able to survive on the court. I mean, we're constantly talking about how Rudy, Rudy Gobert can't survive the playoffs because he can't defend on the perimeter. And that's the multi-time defensive player of the year and one of the best rim protectors the league has ever seen. And Sangoon is nowhere near that, where he is even worse in space than Gobert. He doesn't have the rim protection abilities that Gobert has. And all all of the comps that I keep seeing for Sangoon are to these seven-footers. And he's just not that big of a guy. And it... I just I don't think he's going to be able to move guys like he did in the Turkish league and I think he's going to be just much easier to defend than the Turkish league defended him. That's fair. I mean, I certainly get where you're coming from with that. Really for me though, I think that his offensive game is developed enough that it'll be hard for teams to counter everything that he can bring to the offensive end of the floor. Again, I think really the big debate here is just how damaging is his defense. And I think I'm at a point where it's certainly a problem. You know, I certainly don't think that he's going to be a good defender anytime soon or honestly ever. But I think for me, it's more just that you know, if you can, as you mentioned with Sabonis, play him alongside a big man who can protect the rim 
you know, yes, you are sacrificing some elements of your rotation if you're just deciding, all right, we're going to play this defensively difficult, to say the least, big man and sort of try and figure out everything else around him. That certainly doesn't work for the Jazz with Rudy Gobert in the playoffs. But Sangoon, I think, can contribute enough on the offensive end that as long as he isn't, like, worst defender in the NBA level of defense, like... Just as an example, I think that Shangun is not going to be anywhere near as lost as, say, an Ennis Cantor is on the defensive end of the floor. And if you look at the rest of their games, you know, Cantor is, I guess he's closer to seven feet than Shangun is, but, you know, really his main role is as a pick and roll slash post up big man who gets a ton of rebounds and gives up a decent amount on the defensive end of the floor. I think that if Shangun can be a better version of that, which, you know, I think is the worst that it looks for him, you know, I don't think that he's going to be a worse defender than Ennis Cantor. You know, if that's the floor for him, that's, I think, still a valuable player that's worth considering towards the back end of the lottery. But if he really is, you know, undersized and the worst defender in the NBA, then you're right. His offensive game won't matter, but... I think that he'll be able to get to a level of atrocious on the defensive end that is, like, acceptably atrocious given the benefits that he brings to your team on the offensive end of the floor. And I, I, I do picture him as an Enos Cantor and maybe worse level defender. And I, I don't like that comp for him because I, I do think Sangoon, at the end of the day, is going to be a far su- superior um, offensive player. Uh, mainly because I think he'll be able to step away uh, from from the post. Canner has, you know, he he has a good post game, and I think something that he doesn't get enough credit for is that he's been an excellent rebounder his entire career. Um, so, but overall, I don't really like that comp. I think they're kind of different players, but defensively, I I don't know if he ever significantly surpasses uh, the impact that Canner has. Wow, that is a dark, dark take. <laughs> hence hence why I have him as a fringe first-rounder. Fair enough. And my thought that that is an overly dark take is probably why I have him towards the back end of the lottery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I, it, it's, it's a good way to... I, you mentioned it earlier, but to circle back towards that draft philosophy. And if I miss on Sangoon... I am fine with it because if I take him in the top 10 over a James Booknight or a Josh Giddy or Moses Moody or Franz Wagner, or Scotty Barnes, or any of those guys who I am so confident are going to be legitimate long-term rotation players. And I take Singoon over one of them and he doesn't hit. I'm, getting fired and if he does hit i just don't see him his version of hitting as being enough to elevate my team to be a legit contender so he's just one of these guys where i don't think he raises the bar enough in the grand scheme of things and just is gonna get a gm fired well if someone takes him at fourth overall i think that could definitely get a (laughs) but i don't know you know if someone takes him at 13, 14. It's interesting that you brought up Franz Wagner because I think that's a very interesting prospect to compare Shangun to in that 
Wagner's just got such a baseline of defensive competence that Shangun obviously doesn't have. I think that the absolute ceiling of Shangun is higher, but I think that a team would need to make so many adjustments to make sure that he hits that ceiling that it wouldn't be worth it to try and take that chance on him as like an early lottery pick because he'll need pieces around him to reach his absolute ceiling. Whereas with Wagner, he's got such a complementary skill set that he can fit better in a wider variety of different environments. You know, I think that if Shengun does end up being a superstar like he was in the Turkish league, that it probably won't be on a team that takes him, you know, fourth or fifth overall. It's going to be as it was in the mock, you know, him falling to the Spurs at 12 and them just absolutely maximizing his skill set. And if, if you are getting, I think that point is really important. If you do take him, I think you have to change a lot about your rotation to really maximize what he could be. And I, I think it's it would be such a detriment and you'd have to start from such a base level to do that where it just it wouldn't be worth it. And say you do have to play him alongside another big man to who can who is more defensive oriented, then Sengun is even easier to draw out to the perimeter and abuse in space. And I, I think he will be an impressive offensive player, but I don't think it's going to be anywhere near the level that outweighs how bad I think he's going to be defensively. All right. So before we wrap things up here, I just wanted to sort of talk quickly about this international prospect class. And we just had a lengthy discussion about Alper and Shangun. And the reason that we are covering Shangun as the number 31 player on the top 75 on hashtag basketball.com is because one of the more hyped international prospects in his class in Rojo Prakachin withdrew from the draft the day before we're recording this, which basically means that the international prospect class that's likely to go in the first round is a really intriguing group of incredibly different players in Josh Giddy, Usman Garuba, and Alperin Shangun. It's it's hard to think of three more different prospects really anywhere on the first round board. It was such a bummer that Rocco dropped out and yeah, and he was so good. Um it'll be really interesting to see where he ends up going next season. And I, I think next next year's draft is going to be really international heavy whereas it this one is a little more thin but that, that that's an important point where giddy is this jumbo sized point guard who's an elite passer Sangoon is this undersized center who's projects to be this super skilled offensive big man and usman garuba is this defensive nightmare who's a little undersized as a big man and doesn't have a whole lot to offer on offense so I, i'm fascinated to see where these guys go I, th- I i would be pretty surprised if giddy's not the first one taken but it wouldn't surprise me if garuba went anywhere from say 10 to 25 because maybe some teams just aren't able to get him in for workouts or interviews because of the Olympics and maybe some buy into where he is offensively more than others. 
you know, I, I have a lot of hesitations with his offensive ability. It's almost the exact inverse of Sangoon for me, where I think Garuba could be this awesome defensive player, but I think he could be an extreme liability offensively. So even though, you know, gene manipulation and splicing is, I'm sure it violates numerous international laws, but if I could merge Garuba and Sangoon, I, I think you, you might get a top one or two player in this draft. See, the problem is if you do merge Garuba and Shangun, you might end up with someone who's six eight and can't play defense and doesn't know where to be on the offensive end of the floor. You know, you could get the inverse just as well, easy. I want the good I want the good parts. I'm not just randomly merging. <laughs> Come on, Nick. <laughs> Gonna have uh let's see, let's take the offensive game of Tony Allen <laughs> and the defensive game of Ennis Cantor and uh, you got yourself a player there. Not a good player, but a player. Yep. I'm not sure it's even a player at that point. Well, you know, there are YMCAs all around the world, right? <laughs> yeah, well, but pivoting back to the international class as a whole, there were a lot of guys who just who dropped out who I think would have been mid or early second round draft and stashes, um, so who are no longer staying in the draft. And, you know, guys like Khalifa Diop or hook party or yeah i think precaution would have been probably right around 20 but even guys like Guy santos you know those those type of guys who would have been these long-term stashes over in europe who te- we always see teams take around you know in the late 30s early 40s and we're like wait who is that and it's a lot of those guys dropped out so it'll be fascinating to see if we see more of these home run swings on some younger college guys like a BJ Boston a little earlier, or if teams kind of pivot and take more senior players like a Joe Wieskamp or Isaiah Livers or Quinn Grimes a little earlier than they would have and try and plug them in right away for a couple of years instead of using that draft and stash philosophy. Yeah, Prakashin was the highest rated of the international guys who decided to withdraw mm-hmm. their names from the draft, but I was a bit shocked that Hookporty in particular also pulled his name from this draft. I thought he would have been a clear draft and stash choice in the early 40s, but you know, as you mentioned, maybe this means that a bunch of guys who would have told teams not to draft them so that they could try and get contracts as undrafted free agents, you know, maybe a lot of those guys end up being picked in the late thirties, early forties now, rather than saying, actually don't draft me. I want to take my chances as an undrafted free agent. And, you know, maybe that's where we see guys like Wieskamp or Quentin Grimes get a look in the early second round. And if, if anything, I, I think a international guy to really keep an eye on now is um, I'm going to butcher his name. So I apologize in advance, but Vren's, Legionberg uh, from Belgium, 6'10 power forward, moves like a wing, promising shooter, good passer. Um, it doesn't do much finishing through traffic or really creating space off the dribble, but he's an interesting player who, and he's very active on social media and has told a bunch of people that he's not willing to be stashed. So it'll be interesting to see if maybe a guy like that, who's a little more of a project, ends up jumping much higher than he previously would have. All right. Anything else you want to cover here before we wrap things up? Um, 
final draft guide, top 75 to 80-ish, I don't know, somewhere in that range. Uh, we'll hopefully be up in the next week or so, definitely before the draft, uh, definitely before we record next week. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, Kai Jones scouting report went up today. James Book Knight was submitted today as well. I'm just going to kind of keep plugging out as many of those as possible up until draft day. All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find his work on hashtag basketball as well as at Canisupis. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. And definitely check out the Kai Jones piece that went up today. Really interesting piece on a really interesting prospect who's certainly got one of the wider potential swings of anybody in the lottery range on draft night. But in the meantime, you can also find my work on the hashtag basketball website, and you can find me on Twitter at M-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. As Tyler already mentioned, there will be a new top 75 slash top 80 up on the website before our recording next week. So we will definitely go over that new list in some detail for our episode next Tuesday. And then... The NBA draft is next Thursday, July 29th, so we will have a wrap-up podcast covering that draft the next day on Friday, and that will then be the end of this season of NBA Deep Dives and Draft Deep Dives. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback about the podcast as well, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.